Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. When a fog gathers, when a fog descends, it folds the landscape into a series of chambers I can walk through, unmindful of entering or leaving, as though I am a still point and the world remakes itself around me. This program features the work of 2011 writer Anne McDuffie. Curator Susan Rich sat down with her in the studio. Do you remember as a child wanting to be a writer? Do you remember any kind of thoughts that came to you about that? I always wanted to be a writer. I think because I always loved to read, and I don't think you can read without sort of imagining yourself in that voice or creating those fabulous characters and situations. I used to dream about writing sometimes. I would have dreams where I was reading a book and I was watching the pictures come to life on the page, and as I was speaking the text, the words would appear on the page. That was really, that was my dream of writing when I was five or six years old. What are you most proud of in your writing? The pieces that I'm proud of are the ones that that are very subtle, that accrue meaning through structure in which I don't have to tell a lot. I think I'm always trying when I'm writing to let a form kind of rise organically. And so when I can be patient enough to let that just happen and not try to force some form on a piece, then I like it. Those are the ones that I go back and read and think, oh, yeah, I did. I got it. Now we'll hear a selection from Anne's live reading. I've been working on a collection of essays that all deal in some way with a year that I spent living on my own in Spain when I was 18. And I was very glad when Jack Straw suggested that we do new work because I was very tired of those essays. (laughs) And so uh, I started writing about something new. Um, This piece began with a morning walk through fog. And as I began to think about fog itself and to write about it, it gave me a new way into everything else I was trying to write about. I call this a study because I think of it as something like the studies a painter would do in preparation for a large work, uh, an exploration of form and composition, and as such, a little sketchy and a little rough. (laughs) Fog, a study. When a fog gathers, when a fog descends... It folds the landscape into a series of chambers I can walk through, unmindful of entering or leaving, as though I am a still point and the world remakes itself around me. However cold the day, the air will be soft on my face. I'll have to stop a moment and just breathe the dearest freshness deep down things that Hopkins named so well. I know how I watch and wait for it, but that joy comes always by surprise, as though missing is just another bodily function, like the blood pulsing in my veins, the silvery singing in my ears I too often mistake for silence. This time of year, early spring, mornings will be overcast with lights of sterling and salt, or if a storm is gathering, 
oyster, indigo, pewter, and clay. Lying in bed, I'll still need to let my eyes adjust before looking out, assessing the day. One window frames the dark edge of an eave and a wedge of sky. Our neighbor's towering spruce fills the other and dwarfs both our houses. The trunk has split and branched into five limbs growing straight up like water spouts. Branches sag under the weight of more branches and thrash in a strong wind. That's how it looks to me, an animal movement, something feral in it. Maybe thrash isn't the right word. When the wind comes up, I remind myself that conifers are built to move. The arborist has explained how branches absorb the violence of the wind to keep the trunk intact, that if they didn't bend and sometimes break, the force could uproot the tree. Each branch traces a circuit through air, sign of a history deeper than its roots. Some boundaries dissolve in fog, and I have the sense of seeing into, around the edges of, underneath. Walking the neighborhood one foggy day, I notice that all the colors of my neighbor's houses have changed, seem still to be changing. Pinks and taupes shift and settle and shift again, one into another. Grays and blues teeter and resolve, flicker and fade, suspended until I fix them with a word. It's oddly thrilling to wait for a name to surface, to feel the lag, and watch as a single color emerges from the muddle before me. Even then, I know that if I say out loud blue or gray, it won't prevent the myriad halftones from unfolding again and again before my sight. A fan flicked open, a fan snapped shut. By its simplest definition, fog is water vapor suspended in air, a grounded cloud. Like a cloud, fog owes its albedo, its measure of reflected light, to those suspended water droplets, which are large enough to scatter all wavelengths equally. This gives fog its whiteness and must affect how other colors appear. Albedo is rooted in white from the Latin albus, as is alba, the Spanish word for dawn, and albumen, the white of an egg. The white inner rind of a citrus fruit is also called albedo, and all these meanings come together in the chambers a fog makes, which touches my skin, which glows like the walls of a hollowed-out orange. I can't help thinking about the Spanish poet Federico García Lorca, who knew these in-between spaces very well. In his 1928 lecture on lullabies, he describes how a child will imagine himself into the lyric of a lullaby, no matter how incomplete or cryptic it may be. He quotes this fragment. A la nana niño mío, a la nanita yaremos, en el campo una chocita, y en ella nos meteremos. Lullaby, my child, in the country we will build a tiny hut and live inside. Lorca writes, we must make ourselves smaller, tiny, and the walls of the little hut will touch our skin. Outside they are waiting to hurt us, 
We must live in a tiny place. If we can, we will live inside an orange, you and me. Even better, inside a grape. <laughs> the image of that orange has stayed with me, bright, fragrant, hidden, and safe. It's joined now in my mind with fog and with Virginia Woolf's first memory of lying half awake, half asleep in her nursery in St. Ives, bathed in the sound of waves breaking on the beach and the light coming in through the yellow blind, the feeling of lying in a grape and seeing through a film of semi-transparent yellow, a feeling she describes as purest ecstasy. A yellow we might call buttery on a clear day tends toward electric, fog, sorry, electric lemonade in a fog. And a nondescript red-orange, likely to go brown in full sun, falls somewhere between salmon and brick. The greens are the most changed, not just clear shades of spring, apple, or kelly, but also a rusty green rising in taupe that wouldn't have drawn my eye before. Flaking lichens of jade and celadon encrust the trunks of ornamental cherry trees. Leaves lately unfurled seem to hum with sap. Grass blades bristle, and the chartreuse mosses that carpet the brick walk seem actually to pulse with light, a neon brilliance that makes it hard to look at them. When I lived in Madrid as a student 27 years ago, I moved through each day, accumulating the tokens of a new language, and this was how the words felt to me then. Newly minted, each so close to its origins, so embedded in the circumstance that taught me, that its surfaces reflected back actual moments of my life. The language itself became the journal I couldn't keep. My favorite class was lengua, which means language, and also tongue. Our professor wouldn't speak until he'd lit his first cigarette of the day and taken several long drags, filling the room with an oily blue haze. Spain smelled like its men, tabaco negro, crude black tobacco, and brillantina, the clove-scented oil they used to slick back their hair. Our professor wore his hair and mustache long, his clothes baggy, which gave him the vague, unkempt aspect of a lifelong bachelor. His eyes were cold behind heavy glasses, and he didn't take an interest in any of us or share anything about himself, but he brought to his lectures the encyclopedic knowledge of an obsessive. I found comfort in the rituals of his classroom, the ceremonies of recitation and explanation, the readings from literature that he gave us as dictation, scenes too short to unfold that remained lodged in memory like the daily dramas I glimpsed from a bus window. He imparted the sacred mysteries of the language to us. He told us that as foreigners, we would never fully understand certain expressions or the use of the subjunctive, and I believed him. <laughs> I wanted to believe him. It allowed me to think of language as a mystical realm, which in some ways it is. In Spanish, the subjunctive expresses both strong feeling and uncertainty. It's a contingent, hypothetical, and subjective mood covering all the gray areas in four tenses. Iré caminando cuando llegue la niebla. I'll go walking when the fog comes. 
The subjunctive anticipates the fog, but acknowledges delicately that I can't be sure when or if it will arrive. A small shift in verb, a small shift in sound, yege instead of yega, a hitch in my experience of time. The subjunctive imagines two futures simultaneously, one in which the fog arrives and one in which it doesn't. I'm suspended between them by the verb itself. I hear in these phrases a strain of medieval superstition, a refusal to predict or presume, a refusal to tempt fate. What would I say to convey exactly that sense in English? Whenever the fog comes, whenever, God willing, the fog may come? <laughs> what most fascinated me were the two forms of the imperfect past subjunctive that still coexist. If I had taken another road, si hubiese ido por otro camino, si hubiera ido por otro camino, the S-E ending is older than the R-A ending and has died out everywhere else, but in Spain they still use both. One has the rounded contours of ancient mountains, hubiese. One, the jagged peaks of the relatively young, hubiera. The difference between them, our professor said, is definite, but extremely subtle, a question of matices, the nuances that gather around a word, that make of it a small revolving galaxy of meaning. The particles of a fog cloud, however small they may be, are continually sinking through the air that holds them. And unless some upward motion of that air keeps a balance against their fall, they'll reach the surface of the earth or water and disappear. A fog is always in process of formation. Without motion, it has no form. I try to make of my own motion a form, a fog, to see what flickers there. Still skeletal branches grow more distinct as I approach the lines of a tree growing sharper, the essence of a line growing clearer. Thank you. Sound Pages was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2011 curator of this program is Susan Rich. Music performed by the Black Cat Orchestra and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Proventure and C.J. Lazenby. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>